0: glad to be back. Uh, Thank you for those of you who prayed for me during my comparatively short bout with COVID. I feel great, and I'm thankful for your prayers and for God's sustaining grace and power. Preaching has often been described as a combination of both heat and light, Light being the purity of the truth of God's word illumined by the Holy Spirit. And heat representing not not just the passion of the preacher, but also the resonance of the truth, the fire ignited in the human heart. So now that we're a little bit more than halfway through the book of Acts, let's do just a little bit of a a heat check what's excited you as we've walked through this book acts is a a fast it's a fast-paced account of the early days of the church we've we've already witnessed dramatic works of the holy spirit We've seen bold preaching of the gospel by the apostles and an equally bold opposition to the gospel. We've seen really mass conversions. We've seen mob actions. And we've seen the gospel saving people from all kinds of backgrounds and out of all kinds of situations. My Concern for us, pastorally, at at this point in our study is that our hearts would be fully engaged with the message that we see proclaimed again and again in Acts. John Owen explains why this is so important. He says, when the heart is cast into the mold of the truth that the mind embraces... When not only the, the, the sense of the, the words that are in our heads, but also sense, the sense of the reality that abides in our hearts. When, when those two things are together, then, then we will be garrisoned or fortified or strengthened by the grace of God against all the assaults of men. This really is when it works best, right? So many of us live in the tension from here to here. But when our hearts and our heads are united, we can be fortified, that is, strengthened against any opposition that we might face because of the gospel. So my prayer for us has been that as we walk through Acts, our hearts will indeed be strengthened, garrisoned, fortified against the opposition to the gospel that we face in our day. Because as inspiring as it is to draw courage from the boldness of the early church, what is even more important is that our own evangelistic zeal is fueled by the beauty and the power of the gospel message itself. So our, our passage is Acts 17 verses 1 through 15. 15. My beloved brothers and sisters, hear then the word of Almighty God. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. Those that have done that have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, Father, we ask that you would do a miracle through the person and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that as we walk through this passage You would cause our minds to grasp the truth of the gospel and our hearts to be gripped by its truth in a greater way than we ever have. And I pray that as a result of that, not only would we we be strengthened against gospel opposition but an evangelistic fire would burn within us so that we might freely and boldly proclaim the good news about Jesus. To that end, please lead us now, I ask, in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, to state the essence of our focus clearly this morning, can summarize it like this. When our minds grasp the gospel and our hearts are gripped by its truth, we too might turn the world upside down. When our minds grasp the gospel and our hearts are gripped by its truth, we too might be used by God to turn the world upside down. To this end, this morning, We'll look at Paul's proclamation of the gospel message in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll look at all of the responses to the gospel in verses 4 through 15, whether that happens in Thessalonica or whether that happens in Berea. Let's begin with Paul's message. Last week, the brothers were in Philippi, now they've passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They come to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul and the brothers head west from Philippi, they they travel about 100 miles or so to the capital city of Macedonia, which is Thessalonica. So in a sense, that that vision that Paul had earlier to go and help the people of Macedonia is now being more fully fulfilled here. Now note in verse 2, As was his custom, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And then in verse 3, Luke summarizes the essence of Paul's message. He argues that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, it's implicit that Paul then told them about Jesus of Nazareth that is, about how he lived righteously. And suffered and rose from the dead. The reason we know that that's true is because then Paul says that this very Jesus that I am proclaiming is in fact the Christ. So, to help fan the flames of the gospel in our own heart this morning, let's let's take some time to unpack really the rather stunning nature of what Paul says. Verse 3 says that he, was, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Do you remember the first time that someone explained to you that God's beloved son, the Christ, the Savior of the world, he had to die in order to forgive your sin? Depending on what age you were when you heard that, or depending perhaps more importantly on the spiritual condition of your heart when you heard that, what is your recollection of it when you first heard it? Was it confusing to you? Was it, was it illuminating? Was it just devastating? Did the idea that someone else had to pay for your sins just seem strange to you? I remember in college when someone explained it to me, my first thought was, why didn't anybody tell me this before? I think the reality was that I just had never seen it before. I don't think I could grasp the spiritual truth of it because I really think it was another two weeks or so before my heart was actually made alive and I was actually converted. But but I really want us to think about what Paul is saying here. The reason he has to explain and reason and prove the gospel from the scriptures is because the story of redemption begins with a spiritual diagnosis that is utterly devastating. The default setting of the human heart is not, of course, the gospel's true. It's really good news. This is awesome. Imagine being a first century Jew in the synagogue listening to Paul's message. I mean, right out of the, great, right out of the gate, you'd be saying, Paul, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to stop you right here. What do you mean it was necessary? What do you mean it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to be killed and to, to rise from the dead? Paul, The Christ is David's son. He's the one of whom God said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Come on, Paul. When the deliverer comes, he will break the teeth of the wicked and crush our enemies underfoot. He's coming to reign, he's coming to crush our enemies, he's coming to conquer. What do you mean it's necessary for him to suffer? What are you talking about? Paul may have responded, I'm glad you mentioned King David. Quoting from Paul's sermon back in Acts 13, he says, From David's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as he promised the reason that christ had to suffer was because the greatest enemies of our people are not are not the nations who oppress us i i could see paul with just his apostolic passion saying look the greatest enemy of israel indeed of the whole world is the sin that resides in the human heart you have to see this brothers So then, why did the Savior need to suffer and die in order to deliver his people? Let's allow the truth of the gospel this morning to light our hearts on fire. The reality is that prior to the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and in these almost incomprehensible words, and that every intention of his heart was only evil continuously. Genesis 6, 5. Job said, man is abominable and corrupt and he drinks injustice like water. Solomon lamented that there is no one who does not sin. 1 Kings 8. Paul himself adds in Romans 3, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. And he probably stared them down and said, for the sake of clarity, no, not one. Our own hearts testified to this, do they not? We know this is true. Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought, what is wrong with me? Have you ever laid awake at night and some of your past sins are still haunting you? And he said, Jesus, please let your blood cover me. Sin is the great and fatal oppressor from which we all must be delivered. Like I said, devastating diagnosis. But who could possibly disentangle the complexities of the human heart? Who could possibly reverse this curse? There is only one, and that is King Jesus. He accomplished the redemption of his people because he was and he is not only the offspring of David, the eternally all-powerful king. He was and is Israel's suffering servant. He was and is the prophet of Moses who was to come. He was and is the great high priest to whom the line of Aaron pointed. The priestly sacrificial system had been pointing forward to the ministry of Jesus for centuries. The prophet, priest, and king of glory delivered his people by atoning for their sin through blood sacrifice on a Roman cross. But atonement is only as effective as the substitute is sufficient. Your redemption is totally dependent upon the holiness of the substitute. In order to fully atone for sin committed against God himself, our substitute would have needed to have been And to be perfectly holy himself. So then, let us consider the righteousness of one who offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for all who express faith in his work on their behalf. The scriptures are actually filled with examples of both people and other beings extolling the holy and just righteousness of the sinlessness of Jesus. Regarding his birth, the angel Gabriel called him the Holy One to be born. When John the Baptist laid his eyes on Jesus, he declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. So holy is he. At his baptism... The significance of the fact that the, the Holy, really the Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit himself came to rest upon Jesus and remained on him. This reality cannot be overstated. The Holy Spirit came, rested on Jesus and remained on him for his entire ministry at the very same time the father himself he looked at his son and his diagnosis his assessment of his son was this is my beloved son and in whom I am well pleased that's good news for us the moment jesus began his ministry in mark's gospel The moment he began his ministry, he walked into a synagogue and a demon-possessed man shouted, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Despite the fact that that was true, Jesus promptly shut him up and cast out that demon. He doesn't get the right to proclaim good news about Jesus. When Jesus called Peter into ministry... Peter was absolutely humbled by a fishing miracle that Jesus performed, so much so that he couldn't bear to be in his presence. He fell down in front of Jesus and said, Just depart from me. I'm a sinful man. So evident was the holiness and purity of Jesus Christ. After a dream, Pilate's wife warned her husband, look, have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate himself, he interrogated Jesus and he declared, I I find no fault in this man. There was a man crucified next to Jesus who said of him, this man has done nothing wrong. The man who oversaw his execution, the centurion at the foot of the cross, proclaimed, surely this was a righteous man. Everybody could see it. Jesus said of himself, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Can you imagine that being true, But it was true of Jesus? That's not the only thing he said about himself. He also proclaimed, I am the true vine. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus never lied. He never distorted the truth. He never withheld the truth. He never gossiped. He never expressed sinful anger. He never doubted his father's love, and he he never hesitated, not for a moment, to love him in return. Jesus was never bitter, he never complained about anything, ever. He never had a passing thought of anything that wasn't fully pleasing in his father's sight. He always loved, Jesus always trusted, Jesus always obeyed, and he always did so with perfectly pure motives. He's amazing. He loved the Lord as God with all of his mind, with all of his heart. No tension for Jesus there. With all of his soul and with all of his strength, and he did so every moment of every day. And by the way, he also loved every one of his neighbors as himself. But Jesus not only obeyed all of the commands given to us through the law, Jonathan Edwards points out that as the only mediator between God and man, Jesus obeyed commands that were given to him alone that were far more difficult. For example, in John 10, Jesus said that he willingly laid down his life for the sheep and he took his life up again. And then Jesus adds, this charge or this command I received from my Father. And praise God, he did it. Because we are the ones who have benefited from it. The writer of Hebrews described Jesus as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, despite being tempted in every way as we are. This is the one whose life Paul is explaining. This is the Jesus Paul is proving. This Jesus is the Christ that Paul is proclaiming in this Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica. This Jesus is the one who willingly offered his immaculate, sin-free Life in exchange for your sin stained soul. He was executed. He was taken down from the tree and he was laid in a tomb. But three days later, God raised him from the dead. He made him, that is Jesus, to be sin. In light of what we're talking about, that might be the most stunning thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the miracle of the gospel. Jesus offered his life once for all to deliver us fully and forever from the curse of sin. This curse was reversed, and because Jesus accomplished our redemption, When we trust in his work on our behalf, we who are sinners now have fellowship with God the Father and his beloved Son through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we will forever because we are in union with Christ. Paul said in his sermon in Acts 13, Jesus appeared to those who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. So this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may the miracle of the gospel, what this Jesus has accomplished this Jesus that Paul is proclaiming. May this truth be the ultimate source of our zeal to share good news with others. We need to make every effort while we trust in the Spirit to make sure there's a connection between what we understand to be true and the reality of what's happening in our hearts. So pray and ask God to do that glorious work in you. Remember how many times he has demonstrated his faithfulness to you. Remind yourselves of the truths of God's word. And when you can't remember, stay in community so that others who love you can say to you, these things are true. For as inspiring as the courage of the first century believers is, Ultimately, it is when our minds grasp the gospel and our hearts are gripped, are gripped by its truth that we too might be used by God to turn the world upside down. That's why it's so important. Now, as we turn to look at the responses to the gospel, both in Thessalonica and in Berea, Realize we've seen this story before. There are always mixed responses, or almost always mixed responses, to the gospel message. Some receive the message, putting their faith in it, others reject it. Sometimes, as we've seen multiple times, people oppose it, even vehemently so. As the Lord proclaimed through the prophet Isaiah, my word shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55. Now, I love that Luke tells us both in verse 4 and in verse 12, I love that he describes the variety of people who believed the message. In Thessalonica, this included Jews from the synagogue, a great many devout Greeks, and As Luke likes to say, not a few of the leading women. In Berea, many of those who received the word with eagerness and with thoughtfulness, they believed the gospel message. As well as, not a few, Greek women, of high standing in addition to men. It's fascinating that he points out that so many of the women believed. Jesus has done more for the liberation of women than any person or system or nation in the history of the world. Praise be to him. But in this regard, uh, that is, thinking about the religious thinkers in the synagogue, the devout Greeks, undoubtedly just a wash in philosophy, as well as some of the cultural elites, frankly, the, the women of, of, of high standing. As we, as we think about this and process it, I want to offer an encouragement and a challenge. Because one of the things that we've seen, whether it's the Philippian jailer or any, any number of other examples throughout Acts, often the people who come to faith are on the periphery, maybe minimized by society, or people that you would say, that person came to faith in Jesus? That's awesome, right? But but look at look at this situation. In terms of encouragement for believers, and really frankly, what we experience a lot today, which is opposition from those in high standing or from cultural elites, at least as it relates to the truth claims of Christianity. In terms of encouragement for us as believers today, we can acknowledge that cultural elites often, at least those who oppose the gospel, often paint a picture of Christians as either bigoted or perhaps just hopelessly stuck in the past because of our views on marriage and our views on women and our views on sexuality, just embarrassingly embarrassingly out of touch with the modern age. Or maybe we're portrayed as just kind of simple-minded folks that can either be marginalized or, or just ignored. Just as an aside, often the charge is made, you need to get on the right side of history. I can almost not even begin to say how myopic that is, given that the things that we're talking about in this day have only been around for, really since about the Obama presidency, which isn't that long ago. I'm not saying they didn't exist before. What I'm saying is they have taken center stage in the culture. What I think is actually going to happen is that in the future, historians are going to look back on us and say, that was the most narcissistic group of human beings that have ever existed on earth. So don't be concerned about what side of history we fall on. Our Lord rules all of history. But as it relates to being portrayed as kind of hopelessly simple, let me say that we not need We do not need to feel sheepish about any aspect of the intellectual or philosophical or theological or ethical aspects of our faith in Jesus. Christianity represents the highest virtue of any system of thought in the history of the world. More books have been written engaging with the philosophical and theological and ethical ideas of Jesus over and against any other teacher in history, and it's not even close So take heart when you look at this passage, when you see that religious thinkers and devout Greeks and not a few women of high standing in the culture, they embraced the gospel message when they heard it. That's encouraging. The Holy Spirit can make any heart come alive to the truth at any moment of any day in any place, no matter how seemingly unlikely. That is a reason to celebrate. And that is a reason to have confidence in our gospel proclamation. Now, my respectful challenge is offered to, maybe to those of you who would view yourselves as thoughtful or philosophical or or very moral people, but who are either skeptical of Christianity and its truth claims, or that you've just dismissed or just rejected those outright. Maybe even another layer, maybe, maybe there's something attractive about the truth claims of Jesus, but you're hedging. It's stimulating for your mind in some sense, but you're not really putting your full faith in the reality of who he is and what he has accomplished. May I say to you that the truth about Jesus can hold up not only to the doubts that reside in your mind, but the hesitancies of your heart. I'll never forget a woman calling me. This is probably 12 or 15 Years ago, she called me after the service and said, so my husband and I would probably describe ourselves as intellectuals. And that's what we thought walking in the door. Walking out of the door this morning, we realized, well, in fact, we know nothing. (laughs) <laughs> now, the part I can't remember is what was it that struck her so profoundly, but but what the issue was is she was doing a self-assessment and realized, I've not really thought intellectually honestly about Christianity and its claims. But this is powerful. And these are truth claims that must be dealt with. And wonderfully, it led to... to a genuine interest and engagement with our church and uh, a deep desire to grow in her faith. So my sincere question, though, if you are a skeptic or if you have rejected the claims of the Christian faith is, have you, and I mean this in all sincerity, have you actually engaged with the truth claims of Christianity in a fair-minded way, with the intellectual rigor that they demand, or have you perhaps rejected some, some caricatured idea of Christianity that frankly the majority of Christians would probably reject as ludicrous also? In today's passage, There is a reliable historical account of a group of people from Berea who heard the gospel proclaimed to them. Their response was rational and thorough. Upon further review, as they looked at these things and weighed these things, they found the proclamation compelling and they put their faith in Jesus. If Christian truth claims are denigrated, in the conversational circles within which you operate. I would encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, to bring as much intellectual rigor as you can possibly muster to the Bible. It's been facing intellectual scrutiny for 3,500 years or more. You may be surprised. Oh, and I pray this would be true. You may be surprised to find out how consistent and coherent and compelling its truth claims actually are. One of the most brilliant men I have ever known who had a doctorate in jurisprudence, he he told me that he was converted simply because he read the New Testament and found it utterly convincing. So I would say, if I'm describing you, what about you? Are you up for the challenge? Now, what we also notice here is both in Thessalonica and then later in Berea, there's a group of people who not only opposed the gospel, they did so vehemently and they did so violently. So notice in verses five through nine that it's, it's not actually Paul, but it's other believers namely Jason and and those who were with him, who were supportive of Paul and his companions that were treated so harshly by the administrators. And this was not lost on the apostle Paul. In fact, it deeply moved him and it concerned him. Just like Paul suffered because he was associated with Jesus, so too those who supported Paul, like Jason, suffered for the name of Jesus because of their association with Paul. Listen to some of the words that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 2.1, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as we heard last week, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. He's talking about this scene right here. Later in chapter 2, he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So, so he's shipped off for the sake of his own safety. There's some kind of agreement made with Jason, and, and some scholars suggest that possibly that included the fact that Paul was no longer welcome in that region, or certainly Jason would agree to not allow him to stay with him. That's fascinating to consider, but you can't be sure about it. But Paul's deep pastoral concern continued about the Thessalonians because really his heart never left there despite the fact that they physically shipped him off. But his deep pastoral concern continued until Timothy actually returned to him with the good news that the faith of the Thessalonian believers was strong, despite all of the conflict, and that they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. The Thessalonian letters are just fascinating. It provides so much context and texture for us as we really seek to understand the, the reality of what they were dealing with on a daily basis as the gospel was being proclaimed and as they were growing in their faith this was a fledgling group of people and yet god did a miracle in them so much so that their reputation birth burst forth in the region as as patrick was pointing out earlier note in paul's words though that there is a bond of faith that is formed when the church suffers persecution together. May God's will be done in the coming days for us as a church. Uh, may God's will be done in our community, in our nation, as God continues to prepare His bride for the return of His beloved Son who delivers us from the wrath to come, to quote our passage reading from today. Because frankly, we don't know what's coming We do know some things. When we attempt to love our enemies, sometimes that's viewed as bigotry and hate today. Christianity is often viewed as oppressive, despite the fact that it's the most liberating force in the history of the world. More recently, even, Christianity is sometimes viewed as a blight upon civilization, when the hope of the Christian gospel is what established civilization and made it possible. And so we don't know what's coming, but we trust in our God who is faithful. Now, one of the ironies of those who violently oppose the gospel, both in Thessalonica and again in Berea, is that those who are opposing the gospel They themselves were actually doing exactly what they were accusing the believers of doing. It was just first century gaslighting. It was not the Christians who were disturbing the peace. It was those who were accusing the believers of disturbing the peace who were actually disturbing the peace. That's why just preach the gospel because it's not going to (laughs) matter. We're going to be opposed if we're going to be opposed and there's nothing we can do about it. But some might believe the truth. They accuse the believers of turning the world upside down, which in one sense is actually true, but not in the way that they were accused. I mean, it is true that Christians then and now swear ultimate allegiance to another king, namely Jesus, but as far as it concerns us, as far as it concerns Jesus, we want to live peaceably, with all people. That's our goal. That's our heart. In fact, the reality is that it's Christians who are working not so much to turn the world upside down, but to set it right side up. We, as we say in our statement of faith, when God transforms human nature through the preaching of the gospel, this becomes the chief means of society's transformation. So if you want to do something to change the culture, share the gospel with your neighbor. The best thing that could possibly happen is that their heart would be transformed and that would multiply and more and more people would begin thinking like Jesus thinks. That would be good for the whole world. The reality is that no matter how people might respond, God calls us to witness to the truth, to proclaim his word. Believers never have, frankly, nor ever will, be able to control other people's responses to the gospel. So we ought not to spend too much time worrying about that. But take heart, because this battle is the Lord's. That's ultimately what is happening. What's happening in the culture is ultimately about worship. Note in verse 13 that it's when they heard that Paul was proclaiming the word of God. That's ultimately what the opposition is. It's opposition to the truth of what God proclaims is right. And they were so angry about this, they traveled 100 miles to try to stamp it out again. Nonetheless, Brothers and sisters, despite opposition, we can move forward without fear and with great confidence. We can do so because of the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. As Charles Spurgeon noted, King Jesus will reign and idols will be utterly abolished. But I expect the same power which turned the world upside down once will still continue to do it. The Holy Ghost will never fail to fulfill his ministry to convert sinners. That's a reason to be confident. We can move forward without fear and with great joy because our heavenly father is sovereign over all of history. We can move forward without fear and with great peace and great joy because the Holy Spirit is sovereign over every converted heart. We can move forward without fear and with great joy because not only has King Jesus overcome this present world, Jesus is Lord of the world to come. So I would say rejoice. Rejoice, freely rejoice this morning, brothers and sisters. Rejoice because the mission that was given in Acts 1.8, which began in Jerusalem and moved outwards, one day will end not in some remote corner of the earth, that mission will end in the eternal joy of the new Jerusalem. As our minds continue to grasp the implications of the gospel message and as our hearts are more fully and more joyfully gripped by its truth, may God use us not so much to turn the world upside down, but to set it right side up. And may glory, honor, and dominion forever be to the eternal Father and to his majestic Son and to the all-powerful Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that even now as our hearts are meditating on the truth of your word, you would cause our minds to think more clearly about the reality of the gospel message and about all that is true from your promises in your word. I pray that our hearts would be more gripped by the reality of that truth than we have ever felt before in our lives. And I pray that the result of that would be tremendous confidence to move forward in freedom, in sharing the good news of the gospel, despite any opposition that we might face. And I and I pray that even at this very moment our hearts would overflow with joy as we sing praises to your name for what you have accomplished in us and what we pray you will accomplish through us. To that end, Lord, be glorified among the praises of your people now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.